your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. This is a little bit different. James Fox with you. Tonight, I'm joined by Ed Siebert of the Socks in the Basement podcast. Ed, thanks for joining me, man. Appreciate it. Hey, James. Thanks for having me on. Of course. So we, we kind of got a lot to do. So, you know, me and Mike haven't recorded an episode in probably a week and a half or so. And, you know, Dylan Cease is still on the White Sox and Aloy Jimenez is still on the White Sox. And there haven't been major transactions, but... I think for the purposes of what we do on this podcast and on our site, you know, there's been some stuff that people might find a little bit interesting. So, you know, I think, I guess I'll go back, you know, just to something that you and Chris already kind of talked about, but you know, something that I found interesting, the Eric Fetty signing right away. And, you know, the White Sox were linked, you know, just initially as what one of the finalists with the Mets or whatever. And I guess you just kind of think if if this is a guy that's going to, you know, try to get his feet wet back in the big leagues again. Like, why not the White Sox, right? Because they probably have the runway for 36 starts if he wants to make them. So just what what are your thoughts just on that signing? Really quick for me, I just, I like that they, even though he's a former big leaguer, I like that this front office, like, recognize that players exist, like, in leagues in Asia. Because <laughs> while true. we've, while I've talked about the international market on this show quite a bit, they haven't signed anybody out of an Asian league in, in over a decade at least. So that I guess even, even if he's bad, like I, I like that this is like a little bit different than what they've typically done. Well, when I saw the news, I, I my first thought was Getz was doing like a Paul DeYoung thing, right? Okay. Here's, here's a cast off from another franchise. That's got some pedigree. That's got some history. Cause Fetty was a, a high ranking prospect once upon a time for the nationals. And, and I didn't realize, I because I don't pay attention necessarily. I'm like Chris Getz, or, or rather, I'm not like Chris Getz. I'm like Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams. I don't really pay attention to the KBO, I guess. But I didn't realize he had gone and done that. But what, what I like is it, it, it furthers kind of, why did you bring in Brian Bannister? Okay, why did you remake this front office the way you did? So Fetty recognizing that he needs to do something different because a 5.41 ERA isn't going to cut it. Goes, trains with Logan Webb, who is the ace of the San Francisco Giants staff, learns some new pitches, changes his mechanics, tries to do something to get more outs, goes over to Korea, goes over to the KBO, and is wildly successful at it. And you're right, Getz is looking at that going, okay, I don't know how it's going to translate to the big leagues, but this is a guy, because nobody knows what he could be, they only know what he was for the Nationals, I'm going to get him on the cheap, he's going to be a bridge to maybe getting some of the younger guys up, in a couple of years, but I have him for 24 when we may not be competitive. I have him for 25 when we may be competitive and he's a piece. He's a depth piece. If nothing else, he might be the second starter this year. He might be the fourth starter a year from now. Right. So I, it's a good signing. And, and that's how you're going to remake this roster in a hurry because the pitching market for free agency, unless you want to spend a lot of money on Blake Snell, or trade and see if Tyler Glasnow has anything outside of Tampa. 
I don't really know that there's a whole lot else that's left right now that I would look at and sit there and go, they got to make that move. Yeah, no, agreed. I think you guys, you know, you guys might have mentioned Flaherty because he's got links to cats and, you know, like Sean and Naya has history with Bannister. That's the one important thing that you mentioned, you know, just lean on Brian Bannister here, right? The, the Giants did it for a long time and they unearthed like some league average starters doing that. So I like that cats and Bannister saw Logan Webb make these changes and Fetty has done something similar. Now look, Eric Fetty could come back to the majors and be bad, right? Or something Chris said that I heard you guys talk about that I've also said is maybe he'd be Mer- Merrill Kelly, right? And that's obviously like shooting for the moon. That's on the high end. Like if he's, you know, your your number three starter like for a while and it turns into another deal or something, you know, that's a home run. I, I think they're just hoping for innings over the next two years and maybe like some league average production would be good. But look, this is this is why you hire Brian Bannister. So this is the first of hopefully, you know, a few more of these that we see. Well, and I look at Mike Soroka in the same way. Okay. You know, as part of the bummer deal, here's a guy who has major league history, but you don't know what he is anymore because of the injuries in his case, not because he sucked went overseas and came back and is hopefully a lot better, but we don't know what Mike Soroka is. And you don't know if he's even hanging around past 2024, but you do have upside there. And and one of the things I thought was missing with Rick Hahn where, and I know I, I'm preaching to the choir here, I'm sure to a certain degree, you get high-end prospects, but then when you rely on them right away and you rush them to the majors and you say that they're ready when they're not ready, or they have to be ready when they're not ready, and you don't let them mature on their own pace or on their own timeline, but you decide when they are supposed to be here, you don't have the ability to really build sustained success. If Jake Eater is ready in 2024 to come in and take his place in the starting rotation after being acquired last year, awesome, amazing. That's fantastic, especially if he's really effective at it. If he's not ready until 25, okay. If he comes along in 26 and that's when he's effective, okay. But you need to have a fallback plan. And Getz going after guys that have possible upside, okay, who are not established superstars, but are guys that have possible upside. Soroka could go back to being an ace if he's fully healthy. We don't know. Fetty, with the the new version of him, Fetty 2.0 or 5.8 or whatever number he's on personally, could end up, you know, being a really, really effective, really good starter. And, you know, instead of what we've seen with, like, say, Michael Kopech, who I don't know was ever really given a chance to fully flesh out what it meant to be a starter beyond throw really hard in the minors and blow, you know, lousy players away at triple a or Garrett crochet, who from the moment he was drafted, we were told was going to be a starter. I think going into this season, even though he's had arm injuries, he's been really effective out of the bullpen at times. At times he's looked like a one trick pony where all he can do is, is, you know, maybe just get lefties out. He's all over the place. I, you know, I, I I'm, I'm just happy to see someone in the starting rotation that has made a full season's worth of starts for a major league baseball team. And that we know we can maybe catch lightning in a bottle with, as opposed to, you know, this guy is done as opposed to rich Hill. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, and, and on our show on socks in the basement, Chris brought this up. I'd rather have two years of Eric Fetty and find out what he is than one year of rich Hill. When we know what he is, he's, he's an old man who can still kind of throw the ball. For sure. And I, and I think there was, you know, there was pedigree at some point, right? I mean, this was a guy that was a first round pick. He played in high school with Bryce Harper, I believe. 
you know, there's lots of first round picks that, that end up being nothing, but you know, it, he, he came to the big leagues pretty quickly too, um, and struggled a lot. And, and I think there's something to be said for, you know, some of these guys that have to go to foreign leagues to, you know, fix some things and then come back. So, you know, at least I feel like he, he's definitely not going to take the opportunity for granted. Now, will he ultimately be good enough? I don't know. Who knows? But, you know, the, the White Sox are probably a pretty good opportunity for, for Eric Fetty, I would imagine. So, you know. What, what's and, the, uh, I mean, what's the pressure this year, really? Yeah, um, no. I mean, he he's, he's going to get go started. Yeah, go out and win a division if you're if you're the White Sox, if you can. I mean, if, if you do catch lightning in a bottle with these guys, if you have the magical Rick Hahn, Kenny Williams, everybody has a career year, then you have a chance to compete, you know, and especially if, if Fetty's success in the KBO translates over, um, then he would be good enough. Right. And, and he has proven to be relatively durable in the past. I always wonder when guys tinker and add big breaking balls, how long they're going to last, but you know, it, it's a, it's a good, it's a good gamble anyway. Right. It's a calculated risk, but it's a really good risk. And and if he's seen and if Bannister has seen what he wants to see out of somebody, then, you know, this is their opportunity to show that uh, Jerry's faith was actually real in Chris Getz. And this wasn't a move of, well, I'm just going to take a guy that's in house. So I don't have to worry about actually trying to do something to rebuild my front office. And I can semi appease the fans by letting Rick and Kenny go. Yeah. And he he's a sweeper guy, right? Everybody has to throw a sweeper now. Ed. That's, that's well, uh, yeah, the new thing. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I remember back, late eighties, early nineties, everybody had to throw a splitter and uh, you know, that was the pitch du jour. And then for a while it was sinker slider stuff, right? Everybody, you know, you had the turbo sinker guys. And um, I think you go back far enough. You have, you know, everybody's got to be a curveball, fastball Um, cutters obviously came into vogue for a while there. It seemed like everybody was trying to be Mariano Rivera or Mark Burley with the cutter. So these things happen and they come in vogue. And what happens is that as hitters adjust to it and figure it out, then something else has got to come along. So right now the sweeper is effective. So good. He added a sweeper. I think, I think the thing that he added too was the, the changeup that Logan Webb uses. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what the video, lo- like any grainy video we saw, or at least that I looked at, looked like he was getting people out with changeups for the most part. Yeah. I think he had something like a 70% ground, but like some ridiculous ground ball rate in the KBO uh, that may not translate over here, but that was that was, I think, the 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 bigger change was adding the change up that Logan Webb really uses to his advantage in in San Francisco. So you know something else that happened at the the winter meetings, which look, I I remember when the winter meetings were were crazy, right? And there were there were trades every night, and this year not so much, right? It it was kind oh, yeah. of a a whimper, you know, but. There, there's always the rule five draft on the final day. And they always joke that executives like kind of stay and they're hung over and they have the continental breakfast and they do their rule five draft. And then they, they like fly home. The, the white Sox actually made a pick this year. We've kind of talked about how, how bad we're expecting them to be. So, you know, picking fourth, it shouldn't be a surprise that they made a pick. You know, they took a guy, Shane Drohan, left-handed pitcher, you know, former Florida state Southpaw out of the Red Sox system you know, I think he'll be given a chance to probably pitch out of the bullpen, I would imagine. Change-up's his best pitch. So lefty with a change-up. They'll try to hide him in the pen and see if uh, 
see if something works. But either way, not not that huge of a deal, but just, you know, another guy on the 40 that I'm sure we'll talk about as spring training inches closer. He kind of feels like a young Tanner Banks, which I don't know what Tanner Banks was like when he was younger, but that's kind of what I kind of gather out of him. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. What does it hurt to have another left-hander out there and, and a guy who maybe is your multi-inning reliever? Um, maybe is a guy who ends up being something of a follower, depending on how your rotation has to shake out. And, you know, the, 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 the scouting report I saw on him was basically depth starter, swing man, back end starter. So, you know, just, just a guy uh, more or less, but, but, you know, at this point you kind of need guys. And, you know, the other thing too is, is again, if you're reshaping how you want pitching to look like in the White Sox organization under Bannister, Ethan Katz. Uh, you know, if you see something in this guy that you think you can you can add to it or you can make him a little bit better, I mean, go for it in, in a Rule 5 situation. What's the worst thing that happens? You got to send him back to the Red Sox, right? And, you know, or you got to trade something to the Red Sox in order to keep him if you want to send him down and, and you want to hold on to him. And I think, you know, when you're doing a Rule 5, I've always said I would rather take a pitcher because, like you said, you can hide him in the bullpen. And you can use him in situations where he's going to succeed, assuming Pedro has the ability to do that. But you can't necessarily do that with a pro, with a, a position player unless they are really major league ready. So, I mean, this guy, looking at his stats from last year when he was down in Double A, one thirty two ERA is nothing to sneeze at. It was thirty four innings. I mean, it's not nothing. Triple um, A. A little bit of a different story, kind of a lot worse uh, with a 6.47 ERA. But, I mean, overall, what what else do you have that he would be taking the place of? I mean, who on the, the White Sox 40-man roster are you sitting there going, well, what, what do they got this drawing guy for? I mean, he's just going to take this person's place. Like, he's going to get rid of this guy that's probably more important. I, at this point, I don't know that there's anybody there that you would sit there and go, I mean, you know, really, if this guy outpitches Tuki Toussaint in in in, in spring training, is anybody going to be sad to see Tuki go? Right? Like, are you going to sit there and, and be upset if if Jesse Schultons doesn't get another shot with the White Sox because Shane Drone beat him out? Yeah, exactly. And look, I don't even know that. Like, I don't think they're holding a rotation spot for him, right? I think he's he probably goes into the bullpen just to to kind of see if you can hang on to him. You know, I do. I will say, like, there's been some challenges with command and fastball quality hasn't been great. But I mean, maybe if he's out of the bullpen, his stuff plays up a little bit. Um, it is apparently like a really good changeup from the left side. So right, you know, and there's nice. and there's arm side, arm side fade. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, this is this is just a flyer for anybody that doesn't know. Uh, you kind of alluded to it a little bit. So rule five picks cost a hundred thousand dollars. Um, you have to keep them on your, your 26 man roster for like all of, for most of the year, there are weird rules. Like if a guy goes on the injured list, like, you know, as soon as they serve like 90 days, I think, um, active, they're like officially yours. And if they decide that they don't want to keep this guy, I think the Red Sox can have him back for $50,000 or they can work out some sort of trade. You know, the, the White Sox did this last year. They had Nick Avila from San Francisco. And I think, a lot of people, myself included, just kind of assumed that he would just make the team as the eighth reliever. And uh, the White Sox obviously had aspirations last year to win. It 
didn't work out that way, but they, they kind of, they cut him loose after spring training and he pitched in the AAA affiliate for the giants all year. So, you know, it, it doesn't mean that Shane Rohan's going to pitch for the white Sox this year, but when you have open 40 man spots, like you and Chris have talked about a lot and me and Mike have as well, you know, a flyer like this on a guy that you're pitching people like is, is worth the gamble at this point. Yeah. And, and, Again, you know, you're not talking about a guy, like you said, they're probably not holding a starting rotation spot for him. But this is when you're a rule five pick, you go, you go to your new team and your job is just to go into spring training and convince them that they made a good choice. Right. So it's up to this kid. Now, whatever, whatever he wants to do or however he handles this is, is really, it's in his court. If he comes in and pitches well, now you can have a lousy fastball without much ride, without much run. Um, but if you spot it well, I mean, I know I sound like Hawk, but if you spot it well, a well-spotted fastball can get you out of a lot of trouble. If he if he has control issues, that's going to be a problem for him coming out of the bullpen. But if he can hit spots with his fastball, it sounds like his curveball is a decent setup pitch as well, not an out pitch per se, but one that he can use somewhat effectively. And if he's got a really good changeup, that's a, that's a pretty good – piece to have in a bullpen, especially if he's a guy that can get out lefties and righties, which you need these days. And especially if he becomes a guy that because he's got a starter's background can go out there and give you two or three innings. Because if you, if you're really trying to figure out what you got in Michael Kopech and what you got in Garrett Crochet, if you're trying to stretch those guys out to see if they are going to start, I don't know that they are, but uh, having a guy like drawing in the, in the rotation, not in the rotation in the bullpen is kind of a security blanket for Pedro then if he can if he can find a spot to do him. Worst case scenario, you hide him and he's something of a loogie and you give him, you know, an inning here or inning there. You put him in and mop up duty if you think you're building something for him or can fix the fastball or fix his lousy cutter or whatever it is that Bannister and Cats think they can do for him. But yeah, it's I, I was more intrigued by Nick Avila last year than I am by this guy. That's for sure. Yeah, and I, I thought I thought Avila had a had a real chance and then you know, it, it's always weird, right? Like I, I often talk about how pointless spring training is like, I, they need to get ready. Like, I'm not saying that, but just like using any sort of statistics from spring training to make any sort of determination. Right. I'm, I'm always just very much against that. And then a guy like Nick Avila struggles in spring training and you send him back to San Francisco, you know? So, you know, it, it's like kind of a double-edged sword when you talk about those things. Well, but, yeah, and I, I do think you can evaluate a guy, even if his stats are terrible, because the ball carries, you get weird things with the high skies in Arizona and all that. And you don't know what's behind you defensively. I, I mean, let's face it. You could put out a team of just absolute stone hands behind a guy like this. He's going to throw change ups. Guys will make weak contact. And if you've got your, you know, shortstop who's 10th on the depth chart out there, uh, you know, some rookie who's just overwhelmed by the whole thing of being in a major league camp, and he's kicking the ball around the infield for, for an inning straight and, and you're giving up all these runs. Um, you know, yeah, the, the stats can look really ugly, but I think what you can look at with this guy, for example, is does he look like he's throwing strikes? Does he look composed on the mound? Does he look like, you know, is that changeup actually doing what scouting reports says it does? And, you know, is there something there that we think we want to hold on to? And I think with Avila last year, you know, he was – supposed to have really interesting, you know, stuff. Right. But, you know, in spring training, it wasn't, it wasn't just that he struggled. I, I, don't, I just don't think he looked like he was somebody that was 
ready to be on a major league mount. Okay. Didn't have the makeup for it. So that I think you can, I, I think you can determine that without looking at the stats because yeah, all it takes is if you give Shane Droyan three appearances, the entire spring and in one of them, he gets rocked, um, you know, whether it's his fault or not, you know, the stats are going to look ridiculous because you, you get guys that come out with ERAs in the low one hundreds and, <laughs> you know, you know that mm-hmm. they're not going to be that way for the rest of the year. Usually. Although sometimes the White Sox, they put guys out there that I look at and go, well, I could do that, man. I could go out there and get lit up like that guy. Um, yeah, there were some instances of that this past season. I mean, I, I think we talked about it when I talked to you a couple of weeks ago. Like, I, I kind of think that I've heard of most guys, and there are people on the White Sox 40, man, that I that I hadn't really heard of. So, right, you know, anytime there's a signing, it, it shouldn't really be too tough to make space. So... You know, we said, I said in the lead up to the show that we had kind of a lot to do. You know, I do want to skip around a bit. You know, I want to get into the draft lottery. I just want your thoughts on the scenario, but we'll get to that. Um, You know, we've talked a lot of pitching. Somebody that it seems like is going to do some of the catching for these guys now. Max Stassi, this is a little bit interesting, I guess. Just your thoughts on basically getting him for nothing and then... You know, Chris Getz, I feel like, keeps showing us that if this team's going to be bad, like, you know, at least maybe they're going to be able to pick up the ball. I I think the defense is going to be much improved. They might not hit at all, but they're not going to kick the ball around and lose 14-3 to anymore because of it. So what what did you think about this being the catcher? And then I guess just the fact that he's continually going to build the team like this, at least in year one, it seems. Well, this is what most teams do with catchers, right? They have, they have either young guys or they have somebody who they think might have an offensive potential to them. And then they have someone who can actually catch the ball. And ideally it's, it's one in the same person, you know, allegedly that's what Yasmani Grandal was when we got varying degrees of that in his tenure here, but he was also an old guy, right? He's an old catcher. Stassi's been around a while, but he hasn't been around for a while because he had uh, he suffered a, a terrible personal tragedy after uh, suffering an injury. And before that, he had bouts of effectiveness behind the plate where he was you know, seemingly a fairly legitimate starting catcher for the Angels. And, and you know, last year was kind of a disaster, but you know maybe he shakes the rust off a little bit. I'm not worried about my catcher hitting. Um ever really I'm more worried about a catcher who can actually catch the ball and I I, framing I think is going to go away if especially if we get the robot umpires Um, but somebody's got to keep runners honest and Stassi from what I know of him seems like a pretty decent receiver behind the plate got to be able to call a game and handle a pitching staff especially if it's going to be a younger pitching staff and you really have to have somebody that um, just as a professional back there. And, and Corey Lee is a rookie. Uh, Carlos Perez is, is a rookie. Basically. I mean, you got two guys on the 40 man who don't really have major league experience. So having a major league catcher around is great. And, and again, Stassi, why not? Um, Austin Hedges was out there and she went back to the guardians and he's a guy that can't hit worth a lick. Uh, but, is great behind the plate and they had for a second there Christian Bethencourt who has been 
up and down with a bat, but can catch. And you have really take your pick of, of Max Stassi or any other, any, any other catcher you've sort of heard of that, you know, is a guy that's, that's listed as being like, Oh, he's a solid receiver, but probably won't hit very much. If this guy is batting eighth or ninth or something like that, when he's in the lineup, but if he is, you know, able to catch all the pitchers, deal with them, help them in some way, because uh, catchers really do help pitchers. Uh, if he's able to do that, great. Then this is a good pickup, and it's a good solid pickup. And it's it's just it's one of those things where it's like, all right, it's a professional move, and we knew it needed to happen. But uh, fine, you know, if 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 the Braves are Chris Getz's new favorite trading partner, and and they acquired Stassi just to flip him over to the White Sox because, you know, Getz had already kind of had his year and said, well, you know, I know you're going to do something with the Angels on that salary dump to get Fletcher. If you grab Stassi, I'll take him. You know, then that's Chris Getz thinking ahead too and not having to sit there and try and go over to the Angels and work something out if he's already got something kind of in place there with the Braves. I don't really know how that happened, but um, eh, solid move. You know, I, I, I think it'll I think it'll help because I, I'm not convinced that I want to see Corey Lee 120 times this year. I'm, I I want to see him a little bit less than that. I want to see him in positions where he is going to succeed um, rather than watch the guy have to figure out how to be a major league batter and still figure out how to be a major league catcher. Cause that's what I saw last year when he was up for his cup of coffee. Yeah, it was, it was rough in the, in the small sample for sure. It is, you know, it's not really a platoon cause it's two righty catchers, but you know, I think framing, you know, I think you, you made a good point just about how that's probably going to go away here at some point, but framing is like the calling card on Stassi, but you know, apparently really good dude, leadership quality stuff that you want on a young team like this. And he's also familiar with some of this coaching staff. So Matt wise was the pitching coach in Anaheim. He's the assistant pitching coach with the white Sox. And then an interesting position, the white Sox have a catching coach drew Butera. And look, you kind of know who drew Butera is talking to because there were, you know, I don't know if it was Nightingale or somebody right away said that, you know, they think Drew Butera is a future manager, right? So Drew Butera has very clearly been a source for somebody in the past. But so, you know, he he has to have had good things to say or at least liked Max Stassi, you know. So, and the thing about the Braves, I mean, it seems like he likes trading with Alex Anthopoulos. The things I've always heard about him, like he's, Anthopoulos is really like direct, um, and he's he's like hyper aggressive though. Like, do you have you seen uncut gems? I feel like Alex Anthopoulos is is like Adam Sandler in that movie, where it's just like manic the whole time, and he has to make these trades. It's it's kind of why I I don't really see the Braves as that great of a fit for Dylan Cease because he usually like trades a bunch of guys, and then all of a sudden, like on Braves letterhead, it's a new ten year contract, right? And that doesn't really happen with Scott Boris clients. So that's yeah. I'm not, I don't I don't really think Drew or. Uh, Dylan Cease ends up going back home. No, I, I and you know, and the, the stuff getting back again with Stassi and Drew Butera, who Drew Butera, by the way, is one of those Max Stassi type catchers, right? Um, you know, the the the, the leadership qualities, yeah, it's, he's not going to platoon with Corey Lee. He's just going to, I think, he's going to have a chance to play as much as he can. Um, but yeah, Chris Getz trading with Alex Anthopoulos, I mean you know, it's easy to make a trade with a guy who wants to make trades. Right. So gets being tied 
and and I know we probably weren't going to really talk much Dylan Cease here, but gets being tied to the Braves, gets being tied to the Reds, gets being tied to the Dodgers, to anybody really. Um, it's just a matter of everybody would like to have Dylan Cease. I'm kind of happy that he pulled back towards the end of the winter meetings and, and said, you know, we're going to hold our cards for a little bit here because he could have very easily just taken whatever Alex Anthopoulos gave him. He could have very easily just taken whatever the Reds were willing to part with. And it probably would have improved the team somewhat. I don't think that there's any trade that Chris Getz makes where we sit there and look at it and go, my God, he got robbed. He gave Dylan C some way for magic beans. There's nothing here. <laughs> um, but why not hold on to this guy a little bit, or at least a little bit deeper into the winter and let the dust settle because someone's going to lose out on Blake Snell. Someone's not going to trade for glass now, or they're going to look at that and they're going to look at cease and go, I don't know. You know, Tyler's got a lot of stuff here, but man, is he hard to predict what he's going to do year in and year out. Cease, I feel like I have a little bit better of a handle on, you know, you're going to look at that and then someone's going to come calling and it is going to be, you know, it is going to be the kind of deal we look at and go, wow, yeah, that's pretty good. I think, I think that's what's going to happen. Although I, I did, and Chris and I brought it up on Socks in the Basement. I'm curious what you think. Um, the the reported deal with the Reds for, for guys that are not going to be here for a couple of years kind of, I think, flew in the face of what Chris Getz has said that he wants to kind of accomplish in terms of a quick turnaround. What did you think about, about that reported package from the Reds? Well, so so the one issue, and I heard you guys. Now, now, the issue that I have, and it's a small issue, is just that I don't want, like the two primary pieces being pitchers. Like if it's one pitcher, that's fine. But I think that this is why I think Baltimore is the team or the team that they're sitting around waiting for, right? Because they just have all these bats that are blocked. And I think you could get your right fielder and second baseman in a trade with Baltimore. Now, maybe not your maybe not your opening day right fielder and second baseman, right? But guys, you know, a couple months into the season, you know, your right fielder and your second baseman come in that trade. So, you know, the, the Reds package specifically, you know, the part of it, I guess I don't even necessarily disagree, but Rhett Lauder was the seventh overall pick in the country this past season out of Wake Forest. Even though he didn't pitch this year, he has an outside chance of pitching in the big leagues, like towards the end of this season. So he is pretty close to the majors, but I do agree. The other guys are pretty far away. So I think the deal that Chris Getz ultimately makes this is why I think it'll be the Orioles or Dodgers. I, I just, I think at least two of the players they get back are on the 2024 White Sox. Maybe not from the beginning, but the bulk of it. And yeah, the, that Reds package that they supposedly asked for, by the way, it, that wasn't just like, you know, something I put out there. I just did the math from Bruce Levine's tweet, right? Like, and right, and, right. and kind of put it together. These are the prospects, like if this is accurate type thing, that's what it ended up being. Yeah, that, that was a, a little bit of a surprise, but that's probably one of the reasons why Dylan Cease hasn't been moved yet, Ed. I mean, it's kind of like what you said. There's there's no reason to not wait. I wouldn't wait into the season. I think that's playing with fire, but yeah, a couple, couple more weeks. I, I think that's totally fine once some of these guys start coming off the board, and I think we are going to be more than okay with what the eventual return is. Well, and especially because really... I, I think we were teased with that Cy Young runner-up year with Dylan Cease because he went right back to who he was the year before that. And I just I, – I, I was a big proponent of when Yohan Mankata maybe was sliding away from that one really great season he had, 
are sitting there going, his value is still really high. Maybe we ought to capitalize on that. And even when Tim Anderson, you know, was kind of at his highest sitting there going, hey, you know, maybe it's time to capitalize on, on getting rid of this guy high, especially if you're not going to keep him around long-term necessarily. And when you have positions that you need to fill, what I was really surprised about with the Reds is that you've got this glut of major league infielders and the White Sox have Nicky Lopez and Paul DeYoung lined up to start at second and short right now. Um, why not, you know, why not ask for Matt McClain? Why not ask for even Jonathan India as part of it? Uh, you know, not that, not that I think India is all that good, but trying to get, you know, somebody out of the Noelvi Marte, Dela Cruz, Matt McClain, Spencer Steer, that, that glut of infielders, especially when they signed Jamer Candelaria, I was sitting there looking at it going like, you could have your opening day second baseman. You could have your opening day shortstop waiting until, you know, until Colson Montgomery gets here in 25 or toward you know, the end of 24, if he's, if he's that good, why not, why not have that as, as part of it? And then, yeah. And then a pitcher that, that could, you know, eventually step into the rotation. Yeah, and my guess is like India is probably the name floated, and he's just you know he's kind of league average. And look, I take him too, like on this White Sox team. I just don't want him to be one of the primary pieces. So yeah, maybe the Reds are just you know being kind of weird where they're going to keep all these infielders, and they think with the DH that they can just play all these guys. I mean, they have what the Encarnacion Strand doesn't really have a defensive position either, but that guy can hit. And you know, with the you know the the signing that they just made. I, I just don't know. So yeah, well, maybe, maybe the Reds Jonathan India, he could probably just wait until they DFAM. You would think so. Yeah. And look, maybe. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, the, the Reds are probably going to be active because they need pitching. Well, if, whether it's cease or whether it's glass now or one of these other guys, but it's kind of like one of the things you mentioned, they're probably the least likely of all these teams to go back out in the free agent market and buy another starter. So Cincinnati, you would love Michael Kopech. I'm just saying. Yeah. You maybe. guys would love that guy. Yeah. Yeah. They should take him. He can start and throw 200 innings for him. Oh yeah. That would be great. Over the course of the next few seasons, <laughs> he can throw 200 innings. So, you know, one of the other things that happened at the winter meetings that I care about that a lot of people don't, and I, I know how, I think I know how you feel about it in general, but I just wanted to run something by you. If you didn't really listen, I, I talked to Chris about it on your show and I understand his perspective, right? Like it doesn't really matter that much where you pick ultimately if you pick bad players, no matter what, right? Like I totally understand that. Like it's about development. Like the Dodgers still have top farm systems and they pick in the twenties every year. So that's, that's not really the issue. So, you know, the White Sox came into this year's draft lottery with the fourth best odds. It was like 14 point something percent chance at number one, which basically gave them an 82% chance of picking top six. They ended up picking top five. They have the fifth pick. That's fine. They're going to, in theory, they're going to get a good player, the fifth pick. They have a lot of money to spend, over $13 million. That's not the issue. The issue is the new rules that Major League Baseball put in place, you know, just to kind of stop tanking, I guess. So, you know, to sum it up, the, the big market clubs can only pick in the top six, you know, one year, and then the next year you can pick, you can't pick higher than 10th. The small market clubs, it's two years. So this will affect Oakland and the White Sox next year. Can't pick higher than 10th. But Ed, like, I mean, the White Sox might be, what, bottom five team in baseball? Maybe maybe the worst team in the sport. And they don't get to capitalize on that, however much you even think that matters, right? But so, you know, like, they could have the worst record in the league next year and have the 10th pick in the draft because of these rules, how much does this matter 
what do you think of the rule in general? You know, of course, this was the outcome for the White Sox, I feel like. Well, yeah, but again, to Chris's point, and, and obviously I heard him say that as well, it's really about what you do with the pick and whether or not you pick somebody who is going to develop into a major league player because history is littered with number one overall picks who just never pan out right and or or don't pan out in a way that that we would ever expect them to do you know you you get number one overall pitchers who never make a major league appearance or turn out to be a middle reliever right and i think you can probably you can probably make the case that what this really does is is it does light a fire under somebody like Chris Getz to sit there and say, okay, I'm not going to just roll out the team as it's constructed right now where we don't have a starting rotation. I mean, it's coming together a little bit. It is right now, if the season started, you would have Dylan Cease there at the top. You'd have Mike Soroka. You'd have Eric Fetty. And then you'd have guys like Jared Schuster and Michael Kopech, uh, Jesse Schultons, Tanner Banks, you know, anybody else that's that's around um, Davis Martin, if he's back healthy with opportunities to fill in the back end of the rotation. I, I don't think that he's done. I don't, I don't really think that gets is done finding pitchers. I think there's going to be some, you know, non-roster invitees think Johnny Cueto a couple of years back, but it's, I, I do kind of like the idea that I don't want to see the White Sox tank this year. I don't want to see them be you know, the worst team in the AL. I mean, Oakland wants to do that. That's fine. That's their problem. But I don't want to see the White Sox do that, especially in a weak division where they have an opportunity, even if they're not an all-star studded team, if they just play competent baseball, they can probably handle their business against, you know, the, the division teams and 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 at least make a an interesting run. Do Jerry Reinsdorf's favorite thing and finish second, okay? <laughs> so, you know, if... If they come in with odds next year that that but they're capped at the tenth pick, and they go fifth this year, and they go tenth next year, and Getz and and company are able to take those and those picks and turn them into something useful, then it, it's not going to make a, a lick of difference. Something something useful is better than what they've been doing in in some of these drafts. So. Something useful would be wonderful. Yeah, and and it, I think it really comes down to there, there's two problems I always had with the the Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn uh, drafting. Okay, they always seem to be looking for guys that were you know Kenny Williams was famous for drafting athletes, right? Let's let's take athletes and turn them into ball players, which is always kind of a disaster, I think, in the making. And Han seemed to be looking for guys that were sort of ready-made for the majors. Because I, I I looked at this once, and I was astounded by how many draft picks the White Sox brought to the major leagues. Because I was convinced that they didn't bring that many. And then I realized what they do is they really bring them all up, right? They, they draft these guys, but they rush them to the majors, okay? Andrew Vaughn is a good example of this, mm-hmm. where, um, you know, you can look at what, what Chris Sale did, but Chris Sale's a unicorn right in in terms of the stuff that he had his delivery uh his massive attitude problems in life in general um you can look at at, at chris sale or you can even look at garrett crochet whose arm makes him 
you know, a viable candidate to be in a major league bullpen because that's where both of those guys were at the start. But Andrew Vaughn, for example, this guy who was supposed to be a really like a world-class hitter, and he is hopelessly average right now in the majors, and he got, you know, less than 100 games in the minors. And I understand COVID hit and, and, and changes the timeline a little bit or maybe stunts his growth a little bit. But if you draft an all-world talent and you don't prep them to become a major league player and you don't fix what's what's bad about them or what's lazy about them coming out of college or coming out of high school – uh, if you don't take time to do that in the minors, it doesn't make it look, it doesn't make any difference to, to me what happens because college hitters feast on bad college pitching, right? College pitchers feast on bad college hitters. And there's plenty of guys that come out of college, come out of high school where they were just, they were just bigger and stronger than everybody else. And they could throw harder. Right, their curveball snapped better than everybody else's, but when they get into a ball, their curveball is kind of a—it's not even a plus pitch, or their fastball is kind of average for what the the competition is. Or as a hitter, you know, they're they're not getting uh, starting pitchers who can barely get it up there at 80 miles an hour and are throwing flat 80 mile an hour fastballs for most of the game, where it's it's launch time, you know, and and you're hitting it out of a small little high school ballpark or you know, some tiny little dinky college stadium. When you, when the, the competition level raises, you got to figure out what is it that is going to hold these guys back because it's inevitable. I don't care how high the pick is. It's very rare that you're going to find somebody that just walks in and is a very complete full ball player that can do absolutely everything that they did as an amateur, that they can do it as a major league player. So fifth is good in my mind. That gives you a chance to get – a very, very good player, if not an elite one, depending on how the, the other picks shake out and, and, and how deep the, the, the talent pool is. Even 10th is okay with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm more worried if Chris Getz really was a, a player development guy, I'm more worried about him actually proving that to us now that the shackles are off and he doesn't have Rick Hahn sitting there saying artificially that Andrew Vaughn needs to be our DH slash first baseman starting in 2021. Because and it doesn't matter what his level of development is. Yeah, th- those are some of the changes that that hopefully we see. I mean, you know, they did bring guys in from other organizations. We don't know what kind of experience Paul Yanish has, like in this new role. Right, he was a college coach. That doesn't mean that he's not qualified. We just don't know. Um, and then right. Josh, and then Josh Barfield, you know, ran a pretty good system in Arizona. So we'll see that, but. You know, just touching something that you mentioned and you didn't mention this player, but I'll never forget like the, the first time I saw Carson Fulmer pitch in college. Oh my gosh. And it was like, you know, then the Sox took him. So like I had watched some college baseball and Vanderbilt was pretty good or whatever. And I, I watched him. He didn't throw any strikes at like, I'm just watching this guy and he's throwing nasty breaking ball after nasty breaking ball, but like they're all balls and these college hitters that, you know, are just there, you know, on partial scholarships who have no future. Like, yeah, they're just like swinging over these like bad pitches. But you know, as soon as this guy turns professional, like this isn't going to be a thing anymore. Like his fastball, he can't command his fastball well enough to get ahead in the count. Like this is going to be bad. And then they rush him too. And then it just like never worked. So, you know, like, could that guy have been something for someone? Maybe, but the White Sox were the worst situation for him. And we could go on for another hour about, similar situations where they just rush a guy and we didn't get to find out whether or not, you know, 
the guy was just destined to not be that great or whether they truly like rushed and ruined somebody too quickly. Well, and, and yeah, it's just, it's the history of that with the white is but Fulmer, Fulmer's the other guy that I, I use as a cautionary tale there, because again, when you see him come up and you saw, you saw the stuff move and, and it reminds me of a right-handed Aaron Bummer. Why did Aaron Bummer drive us so insane as Sox fans over his time here? Well, because you never knew where he didn't know where the ball was going when it left his hand. The catcher didn't know. Nobody knew where the ball was going. If it went over the plate, it was almost a minor miracle, right? I mean, you'd sit there and you'd just be looking for, you know, my gosh, are there angels guiding that pitch this time? Not Cal, not Anaheim angels, but you know, the, the big flappy wing singing the choir and stuff. The, the, that type of a thing. I mean, bummer at some point needed to be taught how to harness that or how to harness a pitch that he could get ahead. Fulmer needed to be taught how to harness a pitch. Andrew Vaughn, I, you know, really, he needed to be taught kind of how to do something other than just go up there to look to make contact, right? Yeah. And, you know, how to harness power or even, even develop himself into, into something of a power hitter. There's a lot of things that, yeah, we could go on about that I'm going to be curious to see, you know, if you get the fifth pick in the draft this year, are they going to give this guy a chance? Are they going to give this guy, whoever he is, um, are they going to give him a chance to take whatever natural talent he has, whatever he's shown that's got him to be the fifth pick in the draft and give him time to mature so that when his time is ready, and that might be four or five years from now, that's okay because he's just the next wave, right? That's how you, that's how you get the sustained success. And I don't think Rick Hahn ever quite understood that because he always just kind of figured it was more like football, right? You draft a guy and he better contribute right away. You know, you, you draft somebody the first round if you're the Bears. That guy better be on the field this year, otherwise it's a wasted pick. I felt like Rick Hahn sometimes did that with the White Sox draft pick. So, you know, fifth pick in the draft for the for for baseball. If I don't see the guy, if we slowly watch him develop over the next few years and he's got a good rise and and whatever he is it looks like he's ready to go and he's ready to step in and contribute and be an everyday player. If not a star, wonderful. If they miss on the pick well, they were going to miss on the pick at one too, then, you know, you got to figure. Exactly. And it'll be one of the areas I'm, I'm interested in watching just under Chris Getz, right? Like if they fill spots and make these prospects force their way onto the big club, right? Cause how many times have we seen even recently? I mean, obviously like we, we make the Jerry Reinsdorf is cheap jokes and like there's truth to them. That's why we make them right. But the payroll was really high. So, but that's how you end up with Oscar Colas in right field. Right. And they, they decide like, we're just going to put this guy in right field regardless. You know, ho- hopefully that's the kind of stuff where there's a lot of young pitchers that I think we might see this year, but I hope we see them because they pitch well in the minors and deserve like to come up and start and they knock Sean Manaya or somebody out of the rotation in the process, instead of just like throwing two of these guys in the rotation, because those are our next guys, because we have to, I, I hope that's one of the things that we see. Well, and that's why I think we had to suffer through Michael Kopech as a starter and why I was worried that we were going to go into this year with Garrett Crochet as a starter, because that just seemed to be, they were anointed that this yeah. is the time that now that they have to do this. And, and you can't treat, prospects like children right I, you know i can i can tell my sixth grader that this is what what kids his age are expected to do there's a level of expectation of things that you're supposed to do and not do anymore right um but you can't tell a baseball prospect like okay it's the 2024 season you were expected to be an all-star starting pitcher this year so ready or not get in the rotation and be great 
Like that's just not how it works. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, Ed, we've touched on a lot. One thing I have to do before we leave, you know, I, I do a lot of the, the international stuff over here at future socks. So January 15th is the, the new, uh, what, when the new international period begins and there haven't been many rumors like for the white Sox. Now, one thing I noticed, if you go to MLB pipeline and you look at their top 50, most years, you know, they put these kids like in a, in a Cubs hat or whatever. Or they're like, Oh yeah, the favorites to sign this players, the Yankees. And you know, that was pretty much a hundred percent accurate because you know, b- believe it or not, these guys have had contracts with teams since they were like 14 years old, even though like that's a secret and it's not supposed to be true. So we found out this morning from Francis Romero as a Dominican reporter, the White Sox are the favorites designed Venezuelan third baseman Eduardo Herrera. He's ranked 11th at MLB. Nobody really knows. These guys are 16, 17 years old, you know, but it's supposed to be between 1.6 and $2 million. That's the most money they've given to a Dominican teenager in quite some time. I have no idea if he's going to be any good. He's got huge power from the right side. You know, they, they, they compared his body to Albert Pujols at the same age, which, which is always humorous when you, you know, um, just compare these guys to hall of famers early. But, you know, the thing that's noteworthy for me, they just, they need to do more of this. They need to sign teenagers from the Dominican and from Venezuela. And, you know, instead of like the, the 23 year old, Cubans that they've been spending two and a half million dollars on because it's like a shortcut to your big league team. It's just, that is not the best way to use this market. So, you know, this is a good sign. I don't know that the player is any good, but the process is pretty good. And then it was also reported that Jerickson Profar's younger brother somehow is only 17 out of Curacao. They're signing him too for 700 K. So I'll have, I'll have more info in the weeks ahead and, We'll get the rest of their signings by January 15th. But, you know, that was that was just a, you know, interesting bit of news for what we do over at Future Sox came out uh, earlier today. Yeah, and, and I kind of agree with you. I, I I was getting sick of the let's sign one big international name every year and just assume that that guy was going to be a major league star because he was a Cuban star or because, you know, whatever. Um, because I've, I've kind of wondered, like, well, if you've got a good international pipeline, isn't that how one of the ways beyond the draft that you sit there and you fill out the rotations in Birmingham and in Charlotte and and you fill out position player rosters, like, you know, it it feels like we always have, and and I know you could speak to this much better than I can, I'm sure, but it feels like we always have a handful of names, like the top 10 guys. Right. And beyond that, you don't feel like there's a whole lot of competition for, for what's coming up behind them where, you know, you have, Oh gosh, you know, we have four or five guys that could totally push this dude out right off the list. If, if they catch up and this guy stands still for a minute, it always feels like we're just stuck with, you know, if Colson Montgomery doesn't ever arrive and doesn't ever make it, then what's, you know, who's next, who's the next shortstop, who's the next middle infielder behind him. And how many of them are there? Because if there's just one more guy, that's just one more guy that could falter and, and, and never make it. Yeah. And, and they've had, you know, they've had a little bit of success recently with some, you know, uh, cheap guys, I would say like a guy you'll probably hear of as soon as lists come out, Javier Magoyan, I think is how you say it. He's, he's signed out of Venezuela for last year, very cheap. He hit 10 homers in the Dominican summer league, which is an accomplishment. Like a lot of those guys don't hit that many homers with like a 150 WRC plus as a second baseman. So here's the thing. These guys either go to like rookie ball and they're great right away 
and and then there's something or they're just terrible and the dsl was a flash in the pan so he'll either move up the white Sox rankings javier mcgoyan or he'll be nothing but at least we'll know pretty soon so you know it's usually the way it works with, with these guys that hit in the dsl yeah and and you know it's as fun as it is to sit there and wait on prospects because i feel like we've done an awful lot of that over the past year, few years with the white Sox. It will be nice to actually see if Chris Getz can can put together a major league roster that we can just kind of be surprised by some of the guys that come up and contribute and um you know and, and get some stories that are like, well, this guy kind of came out of nowhere from nothing. They signed him as a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old, whatever, you know, and uh um uh, you know, we, nobody really expected him to be much of anything. I mean, that that was Fernando Tatis until we realized that maybe he was um, accelerating his development, shall we say. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so before we wrap here, you know, I just just wanted to get your thoughts. The Shohei Otani thing, I I don't think anybody's surprised that he went to the Dodgers. You see the 10-year, 700 million number. I I don't know how much you've read just today about what's come out and what the Dodgers did here, but, you know, essentially he's... He's only making technically $20 million over the first 10 years of the deal. It's $2 million a year. Um, and then everything else is deferred. He's going to get, what, $38 million a year then from 2033 to 2042 or whatever it is. And the way it's calculated on the competitive balance tax, you know, it's really just AAV usually. So if that was a true 10 for 700 deal, it'd be $70 million a year on the CBT tax. The way they did it, I think they chopped it down. He'll count like forty-six million or so on the tax, which look still a hefty number, still something we're never going to see, like in a Jerry Reinsdorf org that we follow. But you know, it will help the Dodgers significantly in being able to continue to add talent. What is just, just I guess, just your your overall thoughts on Otani, the Dodger, and the the workaround that they use to kind of be able to do this and still be able to add more players. Well, this is the, welcome to the future, and and this is where this is where it's going to get interesting to see if small market teams are able to utilize deferrals the way the Dodgers are utilizing it for a a you know the biggest ticket signing that we've had in in Major League history. the The salaries are only going to get bigger from here. I mean, I I know Otani is a is a once in a lifetime talent. I understand, but you're going to start seeing contracts. You're going to see another $700 million contract before it's all said and done. It's going to, you know, it's going to be something where teams are going to do that more and more until the levy has to break on it. it Cause this is, this is the way baseball tends to do these things where they exploit something and they do it to almost laughable excess. And then they have to back down on it. Right. So, I, I won't be surprised if they do this, but what, what I'm really curious to see is will there be players that will go and go to intriguing for them if they want to win smaller market teams. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to pick on Tampa here for that because I don't think, uh, I don't think it's fair to say the white Sox are a small market team, Jerry, you've got a lot of money. Um, but you know, it's somebody who could sign with Tampa and sit there and go, you know, I have a really good shot at the playoffs. I have a really good shot at getting into a world series with these guys but I know they're not going to meet my demands. If Tampa can, can use this, this deferral ability 
the way the Dodgers have used it, that would actually make for some competitive balance there because it would help them and help their bottom line. Nominally, yeah, it's about the the luxury tax and it's about trying to fit in under that. But um, I think it's it's what had happened here is is something that was intended to make it easier for big number free agents to go to small market teams is being exploited by one of the biggest market teams to take on the biggest contract that's ever been written. And the other thing that's going to be interesting to see is what happens. Now, this is a major can that they're kicking down the road. And there is no guarantee that 10 years from now, the Dodgers are going to have that kind of revenue to be able to pay off this contract. We could actually honestly see breach of contract lawsuits from players back to major league teams because they're unable to carry the freight. Bobby Bonilla was paid by the Mets, like what, $1 million a year for 87 years or something like that. I lost kind of, I kind of lost count there, but he was paid for, for decades, but it was like a million, a million two or something like that. It wasn't anything. It wasn't huge. It wasn't a huge amount of money, but if you're deferring, you know, $68 million a year and you're going to pay that off at, at what, what, what was it like a $38 million a year clip? That's that money still has to come from somewhere. And if the Dodgers have a payroll in 10 years that is that much higher and they have to pay Otani this money, I don't care about whether or not it counts against the luxury tax. I'm wondering what owner and and how much revenue can you generate as a major league club to be able to actually sustain that and make those payments? Because I, I could very easily see, you know, fast forward 15 years from now and the Dodgers have defaulted and they're not able to pay Otani 38 million a year and anymore every year because they just don't have that kind of cash anymore. And there's no way to re there's no way the man is going to renegotiate the contract again and again and again, and give the Dodgers that chance. I, I, I honestly think that you'll see a lawsuit at some point and, and you will see somebody like Shohei Otani suing the Dodgers because of a breach of contract when they fail to make a payment, a deferred payment. Yeah, I'm I'm curious to see how many ownership groups are even willing to do something similar on a much smaller scale, obviously, right? But I mean, the the only real reason to do it is to get around the CBT, and there's only what a handful of teams that that flirt with that CBT number every year. So it will be interesting to see that going forward. So Ed, thanks, uh, thanks for joining me on short notice. You know, I'm not I'm not totally used to closing the show, but you know, it's been. Another edition of the Future Sox podcast. You know, we we usually record every Tuesday, but it's the off season and the hot stove is is not exactly burning. But you know, we'll we'll be around. I'm sure when Dylan Cease gets moved or Aloy Jimenez or whoever. So you know, follow us, Future Sox, uh, Future Sox podcast. We're now part of the Broadcast Basement Network. If you weren't sure, so thanks again. Follow, subscribe, leave a review. It really helps. So thanks. Until next time.